do you think it's possible to seriously fix this problem without a meaning meaningful reform to prop 13 well you guys don't ask any simple questions do you? <laughs> <laughs> welcome to episode two of matt and liam fix the california housing crisis i'm matt levin data reporter with cal matters I'm Liam Dillon, staff writer with the Los Angeles Times. And if you weren't here for episode one, what we do is we talk about the latest in California housing politics and policy and bring you an interview with a leading newsmaker in the California housing world. Um, and we're recording this. When are we recording this, Liam? It is Labor Day, so all the frivolity's over. We're ready to get back, back to work, back to the doldrums of fall, then winter. That's so bleak. <laughs> well, everything dies. Another name for the podcast. Um, it's it's also notable because we were planning originally this podcast was going to be dissecting what the legislature was actually going to do with their housing package, right? And yet... And yet that didn't happen. We thought there was going to be a vote last week on the major housing package that lawmakers have been debating for um, all year, uh, and uh, the vote was postponed. Um, so we'll be talking about why they weren't able to come to a vote on Friday. So there's a possibility that they will have voted on a package by the time this airs. So just keep that in mind. So we'll be talking about that. We'll also be talking about uh, the Supreme Court, the state Supreme Court's decision when it comes to Prop 13, uh, a decision that has been alternately characterized as a huge gaping wound in Prop 13 and something nick. smaller. A little nick. That's right. Just a little. Trick. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> when you take your blood sugar. That's right. That's what this might be. Um, and then our interview this week is with Carol Galante. And Liam, why don't you tell us why yeah. Carol's a good person to so, talk to? So Carol's one of the foremost affordable housing experts in the state. Uh, she worked uh, was a top official in uh, HUD, Federal um, Housing and Urban Development, in the Obama administration. And also was the CEO of Bridge Housing, which is one of the largest nonprofit housing developers in the country, based in San Francisco. Uh, now she's the faculty director of the Turner Center for Housing Innovation at UC Berkeley. And to uh, quickly please my bosses, I need to talk a little bit about the organization that I work for, Cal Matters. And instead of me talking about it in incredibly glowing terms, Liam, why don't you describe what Cal Matters is? So really putting me on the spot, but I think I can handle this. Uh, so Cal Matters is a uh, uh, online nonprofit that does um, investigative and explanatory work uh, in the Capitol. Um, and we recently produced a explainer on the housing crisis in California um, that has gone viral in a limited sense, but people seem to really like it. So if you want a very clean, easy primer on why your costs in California are so high, you can check that out at calmatters.org. And now to the debut of our very exciting recurring segment, the avocado of the week. And Liam, why did we choose avocado? So avocado has become a symbol. Wait, how do you say it? <laughs> <laughs> say it one more time. Avocado. Okay, all right. So the avocado has become a symbol of, I think, our plight. You know, it's at the plight of those who need to find housing and can't afford it. And it comes from a Australian entrepreneur. I think he was a developer. Was it a developer? Yeah, I think so. Who, who said, you know, those millennials, 
I could see his fingers shaking as he was saying this. Those millennials could afford a house if only, if only, finger shaking, they stopped e- eating so much avocado toast. And he's 100% correct. So I, I put the price of avocado toast in a regression and with my dependent variable being the percentage of millennials that own homes. And it's it explains like 80% of the variation. It's all avocado toast. It's perfectly causal. So our avocado of the week will be a segment that we think kind of illustrates some of the symbolic struggles around building housing um, or anything else that's a, maybe a little bit more whimsical when it comes to housing policy. And this week, one of Liam's favorite authors stumbled into the hornet's nest of housing policy Twitter. Why don't you tell us, Liam, who this author is and how important she is to you? So I love Margaret Atwood. Yes. I've been a Margaret Atwood fan for more than a decade. Uh, The Handmaid's Tale is one of my favorite books. And, uh, you know, I waited an hour to see her in Los Angeles earlier this year at the book festival and cannot get enough Margaret Atwood in my life. And why don't you mansplain to her, Liam, (laughs) why she's wrong about housing policy? (laughs) And just be as condescending (laughs) as possible. Um, So just to recap what what happened with her. Yeah. So they're trying to build, you know, a eight story condo complex in her neighborhood. That's not that big a complex, right? No. It's kind of like a mid rise. That's not one of these huge high rises. Um, And she emailed the city council saying, please um, protect the trees on my neighbor's property. We're concerned about this development. Uh, The Toronto Star, I think, um, published a story saying that she and her novelist husband and a couple other very wealthy, well-off people did this. Her her husband was also very upset. Yes, called it a arrogant and brutal attack on the neighborhood. Um, This was the house. This were the houses. That was the attack. Yes. Yes. Um, uh, When the Toronto Star published the story, Margaret Atwood waded into the treacherous waters of Twitter to give her comment on it and then was... (laughs) <laughs> I mean, she, it, it's what you would expect when anyone goes on Twitter. She was basically attacked by Yimby groups. So, yes, in my backyard groups um, in Toronto. It migrated to the Bay Area, and then all of a sudden it entered all of our Twitter feeds because that's who we follow. Because uh, it's Margaret Atwood. Yeah. And I would say unfairly, unfairly attacked. Um, so what what was our position, and what do you think was wrong about um uh, either her take or how people are reacting to her. She was not officially opposed to the development, and she was trying to like legitimately ask for some nuance and clarity on Twitter, which is always a bad idea. But what happens in this type of debate, which is exactly what happened to um, that woman in Berkeley who wanted to protect her zucchini garden, she becomes a symbol of nimbyism, a well-heeled symbol of nimbyism. And so, you know, I felt kind of bad for her, just the vitriol that was directed at her on Twitter. Um, at the same time, (laughs) you know, I think it's symbolic of more than anything that this is really a generational issue as opposed to an ideological issue, because the, the people who were attacking her, I think probably agreed with her politically on many things, right? Right. Mm -hmm. This is a debate that's occurring in primarily liberal urban enclaves like Toronto, like the Bay area, like Los Angeles, Right. And so the conflict is not left versus right. The conflict is those who already own homes and those who want to own homes 
and those who already own homes are typically older, and those who don't own homes are typically younger. That's a great point. <laughs> I have nothing to add about your <laughs> wonderful summation of why Margaret Atwood still great, um, uh, but also the I generational generational divide that we see and and often see in uh, in reaction to housing issues. Now, uh, back to our other recurring segment, uh, the one number you need to know to sound intelligent about housing policy. And this week, that number is... Two-thirds. Two-thirds. Which is a number. Yes, it's a number, Liam. Fra- it's a, it's fractions, fra- numbers. They're yeah. All, they are numbers. No, I think our audience gets that. So why, <laughs> why, is two-thirds, <laughs> why is two-thirds an important number? Well, the first reason is this gets into why there wasn't a vote on the housing package last week in the legislature for the two bills that involved um, money, um, Senate Bill 3, which is a now a $4 billion uh, housing bond that would go on the 2018 ballot, and Senate Bill 2, which is a $75 uh, real estate transaction fee with the money raised from that going towards uh, building low-income housing. Those things need a two-thirds vote in both houses of the legislature to, to pass. And particularly on Senate Bill 2, that's the real estate transaction fee, you're going to need every single Democrat in the legislature to vote yes because Democrats have a two-thirds majority in both the Assembly and the Senate. And so without any – Democrats need all of them, no defections, this is going to pass. And why? Why, Liam? Why is it like that? That's that's the way it is because of Prop 13. Um, And how does that dovetail into the second topic we're going to – tackle here which is the supreme court's decision um that i think a lot of people overreacted to this week yeah may or may not be huge more likely because it's because there's ambiguity more likely not at the moment huge Uh, so prop 13 uh, established a very important thing in um in uh the way state government works with respect to raising taxes and ultimately in subsequent versions and subsequent uh, amendments to it uh fees as well like this real estate fee and so uh, for the legislature to raise a tax, you need a two-thirds vote. And then for local governments, when you want to raise a tax for a particular purpose, uh, such as um, uh, uh, fixing roads or adding fire and police or building affordable housing, you need, or we always believed, that you needed a two-thirds vote to raise any sort of tax, a sales tax or, or a hotel tax or whatever, to get that uh, uh, majority so that there would be that those taxes would actually be raised. So a very, very high threshold at the local level to raise taxes. And just uh, Ben Christopher at Cal Matters, you did a great piece on this too, Liam. Uh, but Ben Thanks. Christopher, <laughs> I say patronizingly, um, <laughs> in the same tone that you would talk to Margaret Atwood. Um, <laughs> Uh, but Ben Christopher at CalMatters did a good breakdown on this uh, and saw that in the most recent election, there were 14 of these basically special taxes that did exceed the 50% threshold in cities across the state, but couldn't exceed that 67%, that two-thirds threshold, right? So this is – it. I mean, two-thirds of voters is really, really tough to get. Very difficult. Yeah. Extremely difficult. So the Supreme Court said um, something – very interesting and what they said was um initiatives those taxes that are raised by uh put on the ballot by signature gathering often financed by sort of very wealthy special interests those are very different than taxes put on the ballot by politicians so there's a key difference in understanding the state constitution with respect to whether uh taxes raised by outside groups or proposed by outside groups 
are uh, different than um, taxes put on by the government itself or proposed by the government itself. And with that distinction could mean, if you go a step further, that taxes put on by outside groups would only need a simple majority to pass, not this two-thirds margin that we've thought has been in place for you know close to 40 years since Prop 13 first passed. And so to, to be clear, it's not as if the court directly addressed that question, right? That there was really a different question that the court's ruling really opened up this potential can of worms when it comes to the voting threshold for taxes. Correct. So there is a lot of ambiguity of whether this court decision goes as far as I described in terms of lowering the threshold. And my best sort of metaphorical takeaway of this is they opened the door to low to a lower threshold for uh, for local taxes. And you can look through that door and see the lower threshold, but you didn't walk through it yet. We're going to need another court decision. We're going to need another test to see if yeah. this is what the re- the logic that the Supreme Court put forward results in a real substantive difference at the local level. And why is this important for housing, right? So you mentioned that taxes can be, you know, specifically raised for building a jail, improving roads, other kind of specific expenditure categories. Why is this imp- why does this ruling have implications for housing? So because you can raise money to um, through a partial tax, through a sales tax, through any number of taxes, you can raise money to build low-income housing or help subsidize low-income housing. And so I would venture to see, because we saw a ton of ballot measures up and down the state uh, to do this before in the last uh, 2016 election cycle, if the threshold were lowered, uh, where you could do this, I would see expect to see a ton more, where we, where we would see housing finance at the local level really being potentially bolstered by having this lower threshold to pass. I want to talk to you a little bit about one specific organization's response to this, which is the League of California Cities. So could you summarize why or what the response was real quickly? So they were concerned about the implication of this decision. And I think it actually makes very good sense for why they would would be concerned. On the one hand, you'd think, oh, well, this is easier to raise revenue and cities want revenue the same way any other government does. So they would be cheering this. But this actually is a huge erosion of their power uh, because it, it shifts the burden to outside groups, which often, by definition, don't necessarily have the city's best interest at heart. Uh, that's why we elect people to have the city's best interest at heart. And they are put, the elected officials are put at a supreme disadvantage if, in fact, outside groups are allowed to raise taxes with a lower threshold than, uh, than city councils are. And so, you know, directing outside groups and say, I don't necessarily want to pick on, I'll, I'll do both sides of the aisle so that no one will get mad at me. Say, say the fire union in a particular city says we want to increase the sales tax to pay for just fire fire firefighter salaries and pensions and they could do that with a lower threshold this majority threshold uh and that could happen and that, that revenue would be tied up forever city city officials couldn't do anything with that um and that could hurt when there's potentially um a crisis and that mon- the revenue couldn't be tapped similarly um you could see a group of hotel interests gathering together and proposing a tax um, to uh, increase in the hotel room tax, for instance, to finance 
a convention center expansion in a particular city. And what that would do is that would lock up that money for that and money that couldn't be used for homelessness or couldn't be used for um, general road repairs or all these sorts of things. And they would, you know, that's a disadvantage that politicians would have. And politicians are supposed to be the ones when we elect them to make these tough choices about which priorities our money should be going to. And so sort of farming that out to outside, outside groups, um, you could really see a lot of, a lot of potential for, for mischief here. So back to the housing package. If, let's say, SB2, which is the um, legislation that would put a new $75 fee on uh, real estate transactions, not including uh, house purchases, yes, um, you always have to include that caveat when describing it. That's the one that they're having, the Democrats are having the most trouble kind of getting through, correct? That's the highest threshold, certainly Senate Bill 3, which is the bond uh, also has a two-thirds threshold, but that gained some Republican support in the Senate, and no one is talking about that as being as difficult as uh, the fee is. Is it possible that we see a package without SB2? I think they're going to pass whatever they can pass um, at the end of the day. And, you know, if that doesn't include uh, SB2, I think um, advocates are going to be very upset. Um, particularly those on the affordable housing side, um, because they've been pushing for that for, I mean, this bill in one form or another has been around for five years, and they've talked about trying to find ways to have permanent source of funding uh, for, for, for low-income development, and this has been, like, the best idea. I mean, we have another bill that's stalled that's almost certainly not going to move forward this year that would eliminate the mortgage interest deduction for sec- or the state's version of that on second homes and redirect that money to $300 million a year uh, to finance low-income development. Assemblymember David Chu's bill Correct. from San Francisco. Yeah, and so that went nowhere. Um, and so they keep trying to find different ways to, to package money that would go in an ongoing way towards, uh, towards housing. And it, if they can't do this, then I don't know what other options are left. Um. So on that optimistic note, uh, let's talk with Carol Galante from Berkeley, who will also help us break down what the ideal housing package might look like from her perspective. We're here with uh, Carol Galante, who is a faculty director of the Turner Center for Housing Innovation at UC Berkeley. Carol, thank you so much for joining us. Happy to be here. Carol, I'm, I'm curious with this specific housing package that the legislature is considering right now, what what do you think's missing from it? If you could insert one thing into it, what what would it be? Well, it's hard to think of just one thing I would insert into it, but uh, <laughs> certainly one thing that I would want to insert into it is a lot more accountability for all communities to actually be producing housing for all economic segments of the community. That that terminology comes from state law in uh, housing elements that communities need to provide, but that uh, state law really talks about planning for all economic segments of the community, not actually producing. So I would find ways to insert much more accountability and and some incentives for making sure that every community is taking, uh, you know, housing and taking a percentage of housing that's affordable to most our most vulnerable citizens. So what practically would that would that look like? Exactly. In 
Well, you know, it could take a couple different uh, directions. One is you could literally have in, you know, change housing element law to uh, require that uh, when these housing elements are produced, that they look at um, actual production, not just planning, so that that's evaluated by the state um, in approving uh, a local government's housing element plan. And then you could actually tie financial incentives to that. So let's actually tie our transportation dollars. Let's tie our... um, sales tax dollars, let's tie our property tax revenue sharing dollars to communities that are doing their fair share and um, actually producing uh, the housing, uh, again, throughout the economic segments uh, that we need in this state. So I'm going to back up a little bit for our listeners who may not be super familiar with the housing element process. And it's something that I've, I wrote about in uh, in detail uh, with a project early, earlier this year, which is essentially every eight years, the state tells um, every local government that this is the number of housing that needs to be produced to keep pace with population growth um, at various income levels. So housing that would need to be produced for the poorest residents is also those that would need to be need to be produced for um, sort of you know wealthy or, or or middle class residents as well. And in the numbers from 2007 to 2014, roughly only half the amount of housing got produced um, based on on uh, on the stats I was able to find uh, in terms of what was needed. And so this deficit really is is what's contributing to our vast imbalance in in housing supply. And as Carol, as, as you've noted, there's really no accountability for actual production in any of these any of these rules. Absolutely. And, you know, not only is there not accountability for that, then, you know, the other thing, if, if, if I could have another thing to add, uh, is, you know, the cost of producing the housing that we're producing in the state is, you know, very expensive and far outstrips what it costs in uh, other states to actually produce housing. And so I would also look at ways to, uh, where the public sector through the state government and local government incentives could, you know, lower the cost of actually producing this housing so we can get more uh, on the ground and get there on the, on the ground more quickly. Have you found in your research any community in, in the state that's doing it right? Yeah, who's, who's doing it well? Give us some good news. Wow, um, that's a tough question. Oh, I no. think <laughs> it, is, it is a tough question. I mean, some communities do some things well, and they, you know, I want to give them credit for that. I mean, the one thing that, you know, some communities are doing, I would put Oakland in this um, uh, category, is they actually sat down and tried to come up with an overall housing strategy. Um, Seattle did that. I know that's not in California. I think San Diego did that. So, Thinking about these incentives, these costs, the regulatory environment in um, in a package of things that a local government uh, can do is, is, you know, is one piece of good news. There are cities actually taking that step. The other step that, again, I would credit uh, not just Oakland, but there are communities that are actually doing what we call specific plans. So they're taking a whole area and they're saying, this is the vision we have for this area. This is what we want to see. Here are the guardrails developers. This is what we want you to do. Um, you know, lay the ground rules and come in and, and do it. And those are, those are positive um, stories, I think. 
In terms of the state-local relationship, are, are there other models out there that you think California should learn from, as well as maybe some models that California should stay away from? Or are we the well, only model that we should stay away from? <laughs> yeah. Well, I think we're the worst model in terms of um, how the state regulatory environment imposes, you know, through the California Environmental Quality Act, for example, uh, lots and lots of roadblocks to getting um, developments approved. And I think we provide those roadblocks, you know, better than anybody. And that is not, you know, something you, you want emulated. Um, in terms of places that I've seen do some good things, um, Massachusetts has a excellent, um, regulatory environment in terms of that accountability to localities. You know, you um, produce the housing uh, in a reasonable time frame, and if you're not doing that, then uh, basically you lose some of your local discretionary review approvals and it goes, you know, the project can go to a state appeals board. So I think that's a positive model. Um, Oregon has, you know, some positive models relative to creating objective planning standards for making these decisions and not leaving things so open to just ongoing conversation and discretion at the at the local level. So those are those are two positive models. And then the last one that just comes to my mind is. Uh, New York City, you know, has uh, started back in the 70s when they wanted more rental housing to be built to be um, providing tax incentives for developers who were providing mixed income housing, um, you know, where they basically had property tax exemptions for long periods of time to get those incentives to get those developers to make make the math work. And that was very successful. It sounds like you're talking with respect to Massachusetts and, and Oregon is that they have more state intervention uh, than we have, um, as opposed to local control, than we have in California. Is that sort of the secret here is that the state needs to be more involved when it comes to actually approving projects or the process by which uh, uh, projects are actually approved? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question, Liam. I would say um, in this situation, uh, absolutely the state needs to, you know, take this ball and say, look, we're in an emergency here. Um, I've heard people call it a catastrophe. You know, I actually think of it more as this is a chronic disease that is going to have a fatal outcome um, if we don't, you know, make some serious interventions. And, you know, there have always been times where you have to kind of go up to a higher level of state government, a state government or federal government to, you know, get local governments to do what is in the best interests of the population. And I think the civil rights movement is a perfect example of that. And I think we're in that kind of situation now. Uh, and we've gotten here because we've allowed too much uh, discretion at, at the local level. So what, what what is that? You said a fatal outcome. I mean, presumably, yeah, even if bad. we don't solve, yes, yeah, so, even if we don't solve the housing, housing crisis, <laughs> California will still exist. So so what what's the fatal outcome you're you're referring to? 
Well, the fatal outcome is, you know, it's not good for our economy. We're going to end up losing some of this, you know, job creation that's happening when employees uh, can't, you know, have a decent quality of life at a, you know, uh, modest middle income salary. Uh, we're going to lose all our public sector uh, workers. You know, I like to talk about my son who, you know, is a district attorney doing white collar crime, but, you know, like he's never going to make the kind of money that, uh, you know, you could make at some big fancy law firm, but we need those public servants. Uh, we need those school teachers and uh, we're already seeing it, right? I mean, those folks are leaving the state and, you know, they're, people aren't coming in at that, you know, for those kinds of jobs. Uh, we have, you know, serious challenges re recruiting those middle income employees that we need to have the state function. So our schools go downhill, our infrastructure goes downhill, our, our planning gets even more difficult. We don't, you know, we need planners, we need, you know, all of those middle-class um, jobs. Uh, and I really am concerned that, uh, unless we do something about this, we're we're going to lose that, and it's going to be a, a barbell effect where you can live here if you're very wealthy, um, and you can live here if you um, are poor enough to be subsidized by the limited dollars you know that are available. And there's going to be a vast group in the middle um, that are going to suffer. Dare I say the missing middle? Dare yeah. you say yes? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Carl, I want to go back for a second to the package that's before the legislature now. As I've been reporting on it, um, when you look at sort of what the needs are with respect to, you know, again, what we need to do to keep patients population growth and also to take care of sort of the most at risk residents uh, 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 with respect to housing. You know, my reporting's found that we're billions of dollars short every year, uh, even if this package passes and also tens of thousands of units short every year. Um, again, if this even if this were to pass, is that your generally your assessment as well, that this is, you know, really kind of a drop in the bucket for what the state needs? It is a drop in the bucket for what the state needs. And I would say this in two ways, both in terms of the amount of money that's going to, you know, the most vulnerable residents, but also the kinds of reforms that are needed to really make, um, you know, the market work uh, for that large um, missing middle. And I think we need more of both. And yes, it's a drop in the bucket. I'm, I'm glad, you know, the legislature is at least, you know, taking up um, and, and doing something. I certainly hope that the package gets done. And then I certainly hope that people don't feel like, oh, we did it. We've solved the housing crisis or the housing chronic disease. Uh, we've cured it. We can go back to working on other things. I mean, this is this has to just be um, the beginning of change or, um, you know, we're, we're not going to have a good outcome. So what do you think the political dynamic that needs to change actually is for this, for sort of some of these larger measures that we've been discussing actually, actually to occur? Yeah, that's the $64 billion question. And I think, one, there is a, a narrative or a storytelling here that I think is important that probably hasn't been done as effectively as needs to be done, uh, which is, uh, you know, this is about our children and our grandchildren. And I don't mean to sound sappy about that, but I think that is 
real. And, uh, you know, we've got to get, you know, politicians to see that. And that's going to take uh, those, you know, vast number of voters out there from the new, from the millennials to their parents to get uh, the narrative that, you know, we're on a you know, disaster path here. So I think that's one thing we've got to change, you know, hearts as well as minds. So this isn't just, you know, about getting the votes. We have to have people understand the importance of it and, uh, and, and why it's so important. And, and then, you know, uh, the other dynamic that relates is, uh, how we spend our tax dollars in this state, uh, property tax dollars, sales tax dollars, uh, uh, you know, all, all of the taxing and, you know, where the money goes, I think we have to have a priority conversation about how to distribute those in a way uh, that get us this housing that we need built. And part of that is in incentives and regulatory reform. And, you know, part of that is in um, making more, more cost efficient uh, subsidy programs. Do you think it's possible to seriously fix this problem without a meaning meaningful reform to prop 13 well you guys don't ask any simple questions do you? <laughs> <laughs> uh I, I do think we have to look at our entire property tax system and that includes some form of prop 13 that could include uh, the California mortgage interest deduction um, that homeowners get it could include uh, how we distribute sales tax uh, it could include bringing back some form of tax increment financing that we had, you know, during redevelopment days, but maybe for smaller, you know, sustainability districts for only for kind of housing and related uses. Uh, you know, there, there, we need to touch those third rails of um, how we pay for what we want and need in this state. And uh, that includes touching Prop 13, but uh, it's not the only thing that needs to be uh, part of the conversation. Was there yeah. anything else that you think we should have asked you about that we neglected to? Especially with regards to the, the current package they're considering. The thing that will just appall me is if people you know, start to uh, beat their chests and act like we've solved the problem. And I don't think that's where most of the legislators are in terms of their... Um, the way they're looking at this, uh, but you know that 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 it is a concern of mine that they'll say, "Okay, we're done and uh, move on." All right, Great. Carol Galante, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you, Carol. All right, thanks a lot. Thank you for listening to "Give Me Shelter," the California Housing Crisis Podcast. That is a new title. We like it. Thank you, Laurel Rosenhall from Cal Matters for suggesting it. We think we're going to roll with that going forward. Uh, again, this is an independent production of myself with Liam as a recurring guest. If you want to follow him on Twitter, you can do so at Dylan Liam. You can follow me at M11 Reports, and you can follow the podcast at CA Housing Pod. Uh, thank you for listening.